Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Some of the topics we talk about on this show can be easily reduced to a short summary and still give a sense of why it might be important. Last topic, for example, was Alan Turing, a British mathematician who was instrumental in both early advancements in modern computing and the counterintelligence effort against the Nazis, but ultimately was abandoned by the government when his homosexuality became too public. And there's your major talking points, right? You can sort of intuit the discussion from there. The Dreyfus Affair is not one of those topics. It's just too complex. I'll give you the one-sentence summary. A Jewish-French officer was falsely accused of selling military secrets to the Germans, and the public was divided on the subject of his innocence. Obviously terrible, but feels a bit smaller, doesn't it? So how are there two hours worth of material to discuss on this? Only one way to find out. Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the Dreyfus Affair, which uh, this one was actually one of my suggestions, but you're pretty quick to say yes on that. I was, and it, I was quick to say yes on it because it's something I so I just don't know much about at all. You know, the reason I actually suggested this for us to do is this is a... a, a this is something that comes up fairly often, like in history classes. And I think it was about the fourth time it ever came up that it actually clicked with me why we were even bothering to talk about this stupid case. It never really entirely made sense to me. And I think it's because it is a really complicated issue uh, that pulls in a lot of different uh, aspects of uh, French culture at the end of the 19th, or yeah, the end of the 19th century. And it's, it's, tricky to pull that into like half a seminar or something like that and actually do it justice. Um, So I I think once you have a handle on what's going on here, it it actually is a really interesting subject, but we've got to do a lot of background work before we really get there. So I I wanted to do that work. I wanted to get into it. I wanted to talk about this thing that, you know, is sort of the citizen Kane a little bit of history topics where like, unless you take the course and like spend some time talking about it, it just kind of seems like a boring old thing that you're not really sure why you're spending so much time on. I've never seen Citizen Kane. You know what? You're not, I'm going to get angry emails about this. You're fine. You'll be okay. (laughs) You know, if you want to watch it someday, it's a, it's a perfectly fine movie, but it it does a lot of things first rather than best. Right. Fair enough. Anyways, the Dreyfus Affair. 
what is the Dreyfus affair? We talked briefly briefly before we started recording, and uh, as you put it, some guy got wrongfully accused of some stuff. <laughs> and that's that's not the worst summary of what happens here. Basically, the Dreyfus affair is a uh, a series of court cases at the end of the 19th century in France, where uh, a French artillery officer is wrongfully accused of selling military secrets to the Germans, and then when it's discovered that he's not necessarily the correct culprit uh what's the suspect that's the word i'm looking for um the the military sort of sweeps that under the rug and that's sort of the story but there's also like so much more to it so we're (laughs) gonna start just like expanding out little bits and pieces as we go and this is gonna turn into a very like full-fledged complicated thing okay fantastic so we've we have to start by talking about where france is at at the end of the 19th century, because we are in uh, the very early years of the French Third Republic. The Third Republic is the government that comes to power after the fall of the Second French Empire during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, 1871. So in 1894, which is when this, this case takes place, the French government is really young. It's only 24 years old, and it's really concerned about two things. One of them is Germany. And the other one is internal stability. Here's the thing. The fact that this government comes out of the Franco-Prussian War is a very new, very fresh scar on sort of the French psyche. Because for a very long time in European history, as you know, France is like top of the heap, right? They're the power to beat. Right. You've got the Holy Roman Empire, sure, but that's a bunch of, like, that's sometimes hundreds of little principalities that are not terribly unified. And, you know, you get the right ones on your side and you can you can make the whole thing topple over. France, on the other hand. France, on the other hand, has been very centralized, very united. So, you know, they're used to being top dog. Along come, uh, well, Bismarck, let's call it what it is, in the in the 1870s, 1860s and 1870s, working on this German unification, one of the first topics we ever did on this show. And one of the things that Bismarck realizes is that he needs a central cause to rally all of these German states around in, in order to create a, a common German identity. Now, it's not as though he organized the Franco-Prussian War for that purpose. He's not that much of a mastermind, but as tensions rose with France, he kind of saw it as a bit of an opportunity and Hey, why not? Right. Wouldn't be the first time. Won't be the last. Absolutely not. So, so this, uh, Northern German league goes to war with France and very early on in the war, there's this battle known as the battle of Sedan at which Napoleon the third himself is leading the army and the French are crushed in this battle. It is bad. They get completely surrounded. And a big reason for this is superior use of German artillery. They just have better artillery, better tactics, which is bad in a number of ways. Number one, Napoleon III is captured at this battle, which you kind of don't want your emperor to get captured. Generally speaking. You know, it's kind of War 101 there. (laughs) Uh, Number two, like traditionally France has prided itself on its artillery prowess uh you and i talked a very very long time ago at this point about napoleon yes and a major, that was one of our first shows that was uh, uh that was our first show i believe Whoa. i know long time ago <laughs> one of the things that the uh grand armee used to great effect was its artillery um it's it's one of the things that made the french army so uh, effective in those wars and you know 50 years later to be losing an artillery battle to the Germans is like major egg on their face. Right. Right. 
you know, it's it's tough, and it also paves the way to uh, German unification, which is like a further insult, right? And it upsets the entire power or balance of power in Europe that's been in place since the Treaty of Vienna in 1815, after the fall of Napoleon, right? The entire order of Europe, the entire political order of Europe, these spheres of influences, influence that characterize the 19th century European politics collapses around their ears because of this, not not just because of this artillery battle, but, you know, in, in a very reductionist way, kind of, yeah. Fair enough. I mean, it's been a rough 19th century for France, right. for all of Europe, uh, but, but especially for France. I Other mean, than Germany, by well, the sounds of it. Well, I mean, you know, they had a very strong... <laughs> 1860s 1870s yeah but you know the entire continent had gone through revolts in the 1840s right like the the revolutions of 1848 which saw massive massive social upheaval economic issues over 50 distinct revolts that are all kind of around the same sort of things which often is you know can we please have a constitution if you want to get very reductionist about it but france itself since the, I mean, even the 1770s has just been whipped back and forth from political extreme to political extreme, right? We go from a very powerful centralized monarchy to the French Revolution, um, which sees this massive, rapid uh, liberalization of the country, to uh, Napoleon, which sees this sort of re-imperialization of the country back to a republic after the fall of Napoleon. Then Napoleon's nephew, Napoleon III, seizes a presidency, turns it into another empire, and now we're back to another republic after his fall in battle with the Germans. And it's like... And how many years does that whole thing span? Everything I just said is since 1789. Jeez. And even the 1789 is just the beginning of the French Revolution. Right. I mean, they were already struggling through the 1750s. You know, the uh, the Seven Years' War really put a, a strain on their um, uh, financial situation. Was it you that we talked about? Yeah, we talked about... Yeah. No. Well... War of 1812. That's what we yeah. talked about. Yep. Um, you know, it, it's it's been it's been very, very hard on France, though. And a lot of that is sort of like a, a national identity question, right? Um, you go from this country who is arguably uh, a leader in sort of the grand European uh, Christian monarch tradition, right? This this whole, you know, appointed by God top-down monarchy to abolishing all symbols of religion and, like, changing the calendar because it was too monarchist to, you know, trying to find some sort of balance in the middle. All of which is happening during, by the way, the Industrial Revolution, which is another layer of complexity on all of this that sees, you know, the rise of socialism in Europe, which is further complicating the political... I'm watching you, like, kind of flinch as I say each point here, and it's a lot to consider, and we're not going to go into depth on all of these things, but I want you to, you know, kind of keep in mind that this is the strain that's being put on France, like, as a nation, like, as a people. And what you end up with at the end of the 19th century is a people that has sort of fallen from grace in a lot of ways you know they've they've fallen from from prominence uh at the at the expense of germany's rise as a central power in europe they've seen uh, economic hardship and uh social unrest due to all these changes uh you know they they have a very kind of fractured idea of who they are at this point and Generally speaking, and this is extremely generally speaking, but generally speaking, you have two-ish camps of people. 
the progressives are looking at moving forward as a republic, looking at a parliamentary system, at wanting to continue to modernize and secularize society, basically going like, listen, the, the old ways are done. We have to keep moving forward. It's nearly the 20th century. Things are changing. And a lot of the writing is on the wall for some of these bigger old style powers, right? Yes, Britain is still doing fine, but you look at the Ottoman Empire, you look at, uh, at Russia, uh, even Austria, they're all kind of struggling. Yeah, a lot um, of them falling apart like, yeah. right around that time. Yeah, absolutely. And we're only 30 years away, less, I suppose, um, from, we're exactly 20 years away from the beginning of the First World War to kind of put this all in perspective, like to, to kind of plant it in time. So we're very close to all of those things kind of just completely collapsing. Right. So what you get is, yeah, the, the progressives that are, are uh, looking to sort of forge their way forward. Let's put put all this behind us. Maybe that l means looking at a slightly more socialist system. Maybe that means further secularization of, of society. Uh, on the other hand, you have this old guard of people who remember monarchists, like remember what it was like to have that glory, for lack of a better term, right? right. That, that sort of almost religious national pride. And I don't mean specifically like Catholic na national pride, but almost that religious sense of nationalism, like nationalism is almost a religious experience for them. Right. Um, They're like uh, zealots, I guess. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these, these people are often talking about uh, restoring a monarchy. They're still seeing that as a potential solution for France's troubles. They're saying like, well, th this was all a mistake. We never should have tried this. France shouldn't be anything but a monarchy. If we just go back to that, we'll all be okay. Right. And those are two very extreme views of society, like very extreme views. And again, not everyone falls neatly into either of those camps. Um, but sort of as a shorthand, we can begin with that. Right. Okay. The military has been spending the last 25 years developing new strategies, uh, new technologies, mainly geared around expecting another war with Germany. As we said, that's one of their main concerns. And specifically, they've been working a lot on their artillery. They don't want to have this mistake a second time. And this is an era where a lot of the advances that you'll see in World War I are being first invented. So you're getting like smokeless powder in artillery. You're getting much faster firing artillery, things like that. When you get to 1894, which again is where we're starting things, um, France has also been through a number of, of scandals, which is why I mentioned uh, internal stability as kind of their second concern here. It's a very new government. People aren't entirely sure about it. There was a lot of kind of negotiation around what form of government uh, the Third Republic was going to take. And what they ended up with was this sort of hybrid republic. So it's not a pure like parliamentary democracy. It's a parliamentary democracy, but it's also not a, a, a an American-style republic or a French-style republic. So what you end up with, and and the current French system is is sort of a refinement of this today. But what you end up with is a parliamentary system where the uh, legislative body is 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 parliamentary in nature. It's a representative body, but the executive is an elected president, which is kind of replacing sort of a, a uh, monarch figure. So they have both a prime minister and a president, if that makes sense. So the executive branch is a president, is elected a single individual, but the um, legislative branch is a parliamentary system. Hmm. It's Seems yeah, like kind of a hybrid yes. system. Yeah, very much so. Um, and what you can get there is a 
sort of antagonistic relationship between the executive and legislative, which is that the president can be of a different party or political persuasion from the prime minister and things can get very messy. Anyways, we don't have to get into too much political theory here. It's more just to kind of lead up to our first scandal, which is known as the May 16th crisis in 1877, which is basically that even though the Third Republic is a, is a republic, they spend its first six years with monarchists leading the representative body. Mm. So their entire parliament is made up of representatives who want to bring back the monarch and abolish the very body that they're a part of. Are the, are the monarchists, is that like a political party in and of itself? Uh the, it, it is a voting block. The the sort of idea of political parties is a little bit hazy. It's not quite what we would think of in terms of like modern political parties. There are a lot of different political parties, right. but um, a, a large block of representatives here have run on a monarchist platform and are voting as a block. This kind of works okay for the first six or seven years when uh, they they hold power. But in 1877, uh, they get a Republican president, uh, President McMahon, who actually ends up dissolving the parliament because he uh, fired the majority leader, who was a monarchist, and tried to put in a more favorable Republican uh, minority leader as the prime minister. We've actually had a very similar minor crisis in Canadian history. You've heard of the King-Bing affair where Prime Minister Mackenzie King tried to run a minority government. Anyways, I'm getting off topic here. Uh, it's, it's, it's not the most uncommon thing, but because it's such a new and fragile government, it turns into this massive power struggle over like, well, who has the authority to actually do that? Should right. the president be able to dissolve parliament on a whim because he doesn't like who the prime minister is? It gets messy in terms of like constitutional uh, uh, definitions, stuff like that. It's, it's, it's a massive mess. Now, the re-election after the the dissolution of parliament basically leads to a big republican win so even though like royalists in general actually gain more seats all those little minority parties sort of flipped the republican cause and it ends up pushing the the monarchists out of proper political power a little bit and sort of solidifies the uh new republic around actual republican ideals but Things look very, very tenuous for a while there. It very much looks like the government could collapse. And people are really concerned about just how close they came how uh, that early on in there, uh, in the existence of the Republic. Then you get, uh, in 1889, uh, the Boulangistes. There's a near coup by a man named Georges Boulanger, who's this royalist general who actually is, uh, he's written in on the ballots. He wasn't actually officially running. More than 100,000 people write him in on the ballot. And he nearly uh, takes the presidency. And this is a man who ran on hyper-nationalist platforms of revenge against Germany. Like, this is someone who has been called, like, a proto-fascist by some scholars. Like, he was extremely intense. And it was enough to kind of spook, you know, be, even though he didn't get into power, it was enough to spook lawmakers into sort of making new laws about like who could and couldn't run for power. And it it's seems just a little sketchy, uh, not, not directly in terms of like, if you believe X, you can't run, but right. they started putting in little sort of indirect things. And you're right. It's, it is, it is sketchy, but there's this sort of, it's, it's this vulnerability, right, that leads to a defensiveness among the government that ends up limiting uh, political thought. And this has the unintended consequence of antagonizing the military to some extent, because the thing with creating a new government, like a Republican government, is that you don't really flip the military. And 
the second thing to note is that in the 19th century, the French military, especially like the officer corps, is still made up of like very wealthy people. A lot right. of people who come from aristocratic blood, a lot of people who would consider themselves monarchists. And so the military ends up being very like pro-monarchist, or at least a, a majority of the military is very monarchist and kind of just ignores what the Republic, the Republic is doing in politics, while the government very strongly rejects monarchism. So you have this weird tension within the uh, kind of the inner workings of the Republic, all of which is like pointing to a very fragile situation. Mm -hmm. The third scandal I want to point to is what's known as the Panama scandal of 1892. And we'll try and keep this short because we haven't even mentioned Dreyfus yet. Basically, there was a French company who was hired to dig the Panama Canal. And they uh, ran into some severe financial trouble. And they ended up trying to hide this financial trouble by paying bribes to French government officials, which worked. They kept the scandal under wraps until the company went completely bankrupt in 1892, and over 800,000 French citizens lost investments in this company that was supposed to be just like a sure thing on the stock market. Just massive amounts of money are lost. So you're running out of money, Mm -hmm. and you solve that by spending a bunch of money to bribe people? Well, they're going to hit a windfall any day now, right? Just one more month. Just one more month, man. Obviously, this further erodes confidence in the government, right? This is a massive corruption scandal. Like, there's nothing else to call it. Uh, The loss of this contract would ultimately lead to American involvement in the project and ultimately control of the region. Uh, I'm not sure how much you know about the Panama Canal uh, situation, but basically the United States gained control of uh, a thin strip of Panama along the canal for 100 years as a consequence of that whole deal. So (laughs) consequential uh, issue. There's also a couple of little like military secret leaks to... Germany that they find out in the, about in this in this era, and they and, and the French military ends up founding what's known as the statistics section, which is this military counterintelligence uh, operation. They did a good job of making it sound boring. The, the statistics section, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's supposed to protect the nation from some of this stability issues, and they got to work fairly quickly on trying to stamp down any sort of information leaks out to to Germany. Now, keep in mind, the statistics section is not a government body. It is a military body. And so it is very much a royalist body in terms of its culture, I suppose you could say. Yeah. So now we get to the crux of the issue. In September of 1894, they have have a number of people planted inside the German embassy, which is like step one if you're founding like a new military intelligence organization, it right? That's about right. You, yeah. you, you, you infiltrate the, uh, the embassy of your <laughs> biggest enemy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in a waste paper basket in the German embassy, one of their plants, who's a, a, a sort of a cleaner, basically, housekeeper, uh, finds this very poorly torn up note. Like it's tor- torn into literally like six pieces. <laughs> It's, this isn't like you need like forensics and like computer modeling and stuff to fix. Like you can look up piece of pictures. It's literally just taped together. Like <laughs> it's, it's so badly done. Um, they find this note and this note d- 
details a uh, secret new artillery that's being developed by the French army. It's a 75 millimeter cannon. Uh, this is uh, state of the art. It is uh, rifled for accuracy. It is smokeless powder. It uh, uses self-contained shells, so you don't have to like load a powder charge and then load a, a, a projectile. It's all just like one canister that goes in. It is uh, fast firing, which means that it uses the blowback from the explosion to cushion the 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 recoil of the of the cannon or of the the barrel so that you can fire one of these things 75 millimeters is uh, like just shy of three inches kind of thing right it's it's a big enough shell like it's not it's not massive or anything like that but it's very much like an anti-personnel like you'd fill this with shrapnel kind of thing right uh it can fire 30 times a minute so every two seconds it is like a no joke piece of machinery. Like it, it will do the job. Yeah. It's also nobody's supposed to know about it. Right. And here it is detailed on this note in a waste paper basket in the hey, German embassy. Hastily, hastily torn up. Bare, barely even bothered. Yeah. Um, get some shredders, guys. <laughs> uh here it is. And so it's run up the flagpole, right? It goes straight to the Minister of War, Auguste Mercier, who begins an investigation. And Sorry, f- Minister of War. Would this be government or... Yeah. Military. Uh, he would be government because in charge the, of overseeing the, the military. section was... Okay, so there was somebody... Wow, that must have been a difficult position to be in. I mean, it's a it's a thing that government... Like all sorts of governments struggle no, I know, with I just point, mean in but, a specific example, right? Because, yes. Oh, yeah. No, no, that's true. And I mean, you know, Mercier wasn't particularly... Uh, he, he was he was a military man like he was sympathetic to the military he was going to make sure they, they had what they needed Fair enough. um you know a, a lot of these like designations are as i said very very crude uh it's more of a, a shorthand than it is anything else he's informed but he, he immediately begins the investigation by going okay who would be the most likely candidate to leak this information which is kind of a weird place to start an investigation hmm. let's just take some guesses at who might be a good person and so they reason that the leak must be high level if they know about these secrets uh they reason they must be artillery trained if they know this much about the artillery they reason that they're probably working in the general staff headquarters if they've had access to some of this information and they narrow it down until they find one individual that they believe most likely is the leak a captain alfred dreyfus dreyfus sorry uh who is artillery trained and who is alsatian why does it matter that he's alsatian mm-hmm Time to go on another little jaunt off topic. <laughs> Let's talk about Alsace-Lorraine. Alsace-Lorraine is a little, uh, or specifically Alsace, it's only Alsace-Lorraine while it's uh, German, but Alsace is this uh, department, which is what they call provinces in France, that is surprisingly storied for such a small little uh, province. Its, uh, its capital is Strasbourg, if that helps kind of orient things. I feel like you might have been at Strasbourg at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely helps geographically, at least. Yes. Well, the thing about uh, Alsace is that it is on the west bank of the Rhine. Okay, so that's fine. Alsace had been annexed by Germany in the Franco-Prussian War. In fact, it is the only major territorial change that occurs in this war, uh, along with part of the Lorraine uh, department, which is why it becomes Alsace-Lorraine territory. And the reason that they uh, annex it in 1870 is that there's this idea during uh, German unification of pan-Germanism, right? Let's bring all Germanic people under one state, except for Austria, because that's complicated, but we'll just ignore that. Um, (laughs) But Alsace had originally, a very, very long time ago, been a state in the Holy Roman Empire, okay? 
But historically, France had this obsession with what they called its natural borders. So it had this idea of France as being like almost demarcated by God a little bit in the in the geography of it, right? It goes to the Atlantic on the north and on the west, goes to the Pyrenees in the south, the Mediterranean in the south, the Alps in the south, and on the west or on the east, uh, it's the Rhine. That's where France ends. Simple enough, right? Yeah. Except for this one pesky little territory called Alsace, which is part of the Holy Roman Empire and full of German-speaking people. So over uh, the 17th century, Alsace is conquered sort of piece by piece by uh, Louis XIV. And then uh, Lorraine's actually conquered by Louis XV in the 18th century. And so they take these regions and they sort of incorporate them into France to, you know, set up these natural borders, as they call them. (laughs) And so what you end up with is this region that has gone from the Holy Roman Empire to France and now back to Germany. And the people who live there are extremely multicultural because they have rich heritage of both French and German roots. A lot of people there speak both French and German. A lot of people there have family on both sides of the border. It makes for a very complicated situation uh, in this very small or relatively speaking small territory. When the change comes in 1870, it forced French citizens to basically decide whether they wanted to become German or whether they wanted to leave the province. Now, Dreyfus's family, because Alfred Dreyfus was 10 at the time, decided to leave. They moved to Paris, so they remained French citizens. But it's kind of well known that like anyone from Alsace probably has more complicated feelings regarding things like nationalism, right? And this isn't always seen as a detriment. Uh, in fact, often uh, the military uh, officer corps would look for people in uh, or from Alsace because of their understanding of both the language and the culture. That's seen as a benefit in terms of things like intelligence, for example. Seems fair. But there is also like a bit of suspicion that goes along with that, right? Like mm. it's it's kind of, uh, you kind of keep both eyes on Alsatians. Now, I should note that generally Alsatians who entered the officer corps did so through the École Polytechnique, which is a uh, school in Paris that's kind of known for like a more scientific approach to uh, military uh, education at this point in time. That's where the the military engineers are going. That's where uh, the latest technologies are being uh, developed, as opposed to uh, officers coming out of uh, Saint-Cyr, which is actually still a military uh, academy today, which is considered the more like aristocratic military college. This is where all the very rich families are sending their sons to become officers. This is where if you go to St. Cyr, you're probably a practicing Catholic, which is at this point in time, like a very big indicator of nationalism, right? right? Real nationalists are still Catholic. They didn't abandon it just because Robespierre said that, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's, it's a very complicated dynamic, right? Right. But St. Cyr isn't taking Alsatian officers generally. Ecole Polytechnique is. Guess which school Dreyfus graduates from, right? Yeah. Presumably he's not from a well-to-do family himself? They do okay. They're not They're not terribly poor or anything like that. But, you know, as, as I said, like being Alsatian isn't that weird. And initially what actually draw, uh, draws investigators to him is like this, this reputation of being like cold, of being haughty, of being uh, inquisitive and curious, which is seen as a terrible thing within the military. But then they realize something which is a little bit unusual and is the main reason that he didn't go to St. Cyr. Dreyfus is Jewish. In fact, he's the only Jewish person 
working at uh, the central headquarters of the general staff. And now, now investigators are very, very curious about him. We need to talk about Jews in medieval Europe. Yeah, I was going to say, what is, what is, where is France with Jewish people at this point in time? Well, that's a complicated question because you have to look at where they came from, which also indicates a little bit of why Dreyfus might have been the only Jewish person on at the headquarters on staff. It's not as though he was the only Jewish officer in the French army. There were lots of Jewish officers. I saw numbers as high as about 3% may have been Jewish, um, but... There is definitely a strain of anti-Semitism throughout the military. In fact, there's sort of two different types of strains of anti-Semitism, which is why we have to look at both of them. Because, again, I, I know all of this is like wildly disparate information, but we're gonna all, we're gonna bring it all together. Don't worry. <laughs> so let's start off with uh, Jews in medieval France. Basically, since 1215, so like the Crusades, Jews had been required to visibly identify themselves in society and in, in European society. Sometimes this was uh, through the use of a yellow armband. Sometimes it was the use of a pointed hat. Uh, there's some very like, <laughs> like rolling your eyes at me. I don't blame you, but uh, people should know that. I think it's, it's some very, like very stale tropes. Like uh, barely interested in entertaining type tropes. By the way, this topic could be its own topic in and of itself very, very easily. Oh, I'm um, sure. We're going to do a quick overview. Various countries had various prohibitions on Jewish people, and these ranged from whether or not they were allowed into the country at all to uh, where they could live, uh, what types of business they could conduct, uh, what their civil rights were, whether they had the same rights as everybody else. And these things really did vary from place to place. But in general, uh, Jewish people are not given the same rights as the rest of uh, the people in these countries. Often you had a situation where Jewish communities uh, across Europe were sort of at least at the beginning, self-isolating in that they found it easier to sort of observe religious prohibitions if they sort of stuck to their own areas and, and uh, associated with their, their uh, with, with other Jewish people, um, which makes a lot of sense. But then these ghettos sort of started becoming legally enforced and then he gets into some issues. There's a lot of uh, problems surrounding medieval attitudes towards finances and money lending and usury that really complicate the relationship between Jewish communities and, and the rest of Europe. The short version is there's a, a biblical prohibition on uh, usury, which at that point in time was interpreted as charging any interest whatsoever on loaned money. Now, Jewish people had a similar uh, prohibition. However, that prohibition did not extend to loaning money to Gentiles. So they were able to loan money to Christians and charge interest on it, which in a lot of ways sort of by default put them in charge of a lot of the medieval banking uh, uh, situation, which increased their wealth, which increased resentment among Christians. And it becomes this weird, bad cycle. We don't need to get too much further into that, I don't think. Uh, They're often the targets for crusades. They're often the targets for inquisitions, for random expulsions when it's uh, convenient for uh, the government at the time. There's lots of situations where the king just owes too much money to Jewish moneylenders and just bans all Jews from the country, and now the problem's gone. Right. Uh, Great. 
I saw I saw one in France where there was actually a judge who was helping to forge receipts for literally hundreds of French Catholics uh, saying that they had paid their loans to Jewish moneylenders. And when he got called out on it, uh, instead of the government doing anything against the judge who was committing fraud, they just expelled the Jews from that province. Wow. Yeah, it's it's not a good time. No. It's really, really bad. You get a lot of... I don't know if classic anti-Semitism is the, is quite the right word for it, but like, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's all these, there's all these, uh, really famous tropes that come out of the, this period about Jewish people, uh, that, that are established in this era. So you might've heard, uh, during the plague, there was, uh, there were instances of Jewish communities being, uh, accused of poisoning wells. And that's what is causing the plague that one of the most famous instances of that actually takes place in Alsace. It is it is Strasbourg where where they're being accused of having poisoned the wells and causing the plague, and so they're expelled from the the, the city. They're forced to live in little uh, colonies outside of the city. They're allowed to come in and conduct business, but they have to leave by 10 p.m. And anyone found still in the city was uh, subject to punishment. It's 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 really draconian stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot to be said about sort of the you know, Jewish people as, as standing in for the other in European society, but we don't have time to get into all of that, unfortunately, as interesting as it is. It does sound like its own show. France expels the Jewish people in multiple rounds. There's there's a bunch of times where they're expelled and then sort of allowed to slowly trickle back in and expelled again. And by the time you get to the 18th century, there's very few uh, or relatively few uh, Jewish people left in the region, except for Alsace, which wasn't part of France for all of this. Remember, it only became part of France in the 17th century under Louis XIV. Right. And when it was incorporated into France at that point, it had a relatively high Jewish population compared to the rest of France. And Louis XIV decided for very practical financial reasons that we'll just let them stay. There's no reason to sort of single them out this time around. And so... Alsace, in particular, ends up with a very high Jewish population, again, relative to the rest of France. During the French Revolution, there's what's known as the Emancipation of the Jews, where they're basically brought up to a point where all of their restrictions are removed. Now, there's no special protections for them, but you know things are just sort of level off there. And this isn't the first country in Europe to do this. Actually, Poland is the first almost 500 years before, but uh, it, it really kind of introduces a new wave of uh, Jewish emancipation in Europe. Uh, You know, the Napoleonic conquests include emancipation. So when Napoleon conquered you, he forced you to emancipate uh, your Jewish citizens. Now, there's still restrictions on mobility and there's restrictions on sort of the money lending industry in general, but it's across the board. And so, you know, it's one of those kind of like, it's better question mark right this is accompanied by a sort of change in outlook among the jewish community which is you know hey we've been isolating ourselves for a really long time and all that's really brought us is alienation from the rest of the european population maybe we need to start integrating ourselves into society now that we have the opportunity and beginning to uh regard our fellow citizens as community members so that they can regard us as community members as well, which brings about its own complications where uh, there's there's a struggle to continue upholding religious prohibitions when you're that in, in that much more contact with people who don't need to. There's uh, uh, sort of anxieties uh, of, of Christians around 
coming into that close contact with Jewish people that they've been taught for a very long time are not people you associate with. Uh, it, it's a it's a very complicated time to be Jewish in 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 Europe, but you know. In in the 1848 revolutions, a lot of these uh, emancipations sort of they really bring Jewish uh, uh, citizens up to more or less full citizenship. And by the late, late 19th century, they've you know are certainly regarded differently than other French citizens. But uh, in terms of like actual legal anti-Semitism, that's more or less gone. Now, there are a lot of traditional Catholics uh, in France that still have a lot of resentment towards Jewish people. There is a type of anti-Semitism that basically regards Jewish people as Christ killers, um, and that has not gone away. And uh, a lot of these very traditional monarchist French citizens see the integration of Jewish people into their society as subversive, as uh, anti-French, and as a very big problem. And this is the military we're talking this about. This is the military topic we're talking about, but that's only one thread of the anti-Semitism. There are two more that I want to talk about. Oh, jeez. Now we're talking about modern anti-Semitism against Jews in Europe. You have the rise of, you know, as, as the money lending system goes down, what we would know as centralized or modern banking is on the rise, right? And that comes out of a number of different sources, but this is where you start seeing what we think of as banks, right? Issuing currency, holding uh, uh, savings, uh, issuing loans. There's been a decision that usually doesn't mean any interest. It just means exploitative levels of interest. So a little bit of interest is okay. This is more or less the rationale that exists today. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But along with that, you get this different perception of the Jewish population of money, especially because of one family. I uh, would assume you've heard of the Rothschilds, mm-hmm. a prominent Jewish family who basically set up banking for Europe, more or less full stop. Uh, <laughs> they were inc- incredibly wealthy. The, the Rothschilds had actually done most of Fran- uh, France's banking system and become very wealthy in the process, but also gotten themselves very involved with like the government in the process. There was a, a, a notable uh, mid-19th century anti-Semite named Alphonse Toussaint who noted that the Rothschilds were a Jewish family, that they are getting closer to the government, that uh, they may be pulling strings behind the scenes, that they are not truly French, and that possibly they are using this power for uh, subversive means. And a lot of this is going to start sounding really familiar in a really insidious way. We're talking mm-hmm. some like one world bank type garbage, right? Right. Illuminati, Illuminati, Illuminati. Um, <laughs> this is like that source of, um, yeah, that that modern myth of of uh, you know this insidious Jewish conspiracy that absolutely does not exist, but was talked about frequently in the 19th century. Toussaint also had this uh, fun little flavor that he added to anti-Semitism in that he started talking about anti-Semitic sentiments in like zoological terms, like using comparisons to uh, animals, like. Base animals usually, which is a thing that has stuck around for a very long time. It really, uh, it really held on. That anxiety in the Jewish community around integration that we talked about earlier, that was a really misinterpreted thing in the rest of France in that they saw this sort of like infighting among the Jewish community as much as they heard about it as being sort of argument over whether or not these people were truly French. They wanted to know, like th- these are these are people who are arguing over how much of French uh, culture to sort of uh, adopt, and it's being interpreted as 
how separate from French society or French nationality should we remain? Sort of defining themselves in opposition to true Frenchness, this like platonic Frenchness. We're in like like peak nationalism sort of uh, uh, or European nationalism sort of era right now, right? Right, right? And so it's very much like this, like, well, we have a concept of Frenchness and it is around things like, uh, you know, for some people, this is a, a, around things like Catholicism or monarchism. For other people, it's around concepts like republicanism and secularism. But all of them are talking about, about like this uh, ideal that they have of what it means to be French. It just depends on who you are as to what that idea actually is. Right. But all of these people are seeing the Jewish community having the same conversation among themselves and interpreting it against their own perception of Frenchness, right? And that's mm. a tricky thing because it's about religious identity and it's about religious cultural practices. And that has nothing to do with subversive elements and it has nothing to do with traitorous elements, I suppose. But but it was being linked nonetheless. Certainly, Yeah. And what's more, there's this rise of socialist uh, sentiments among the French population, right? And when you have this idea floating around out there about Jewish bankers controlling society, mm -hmm. it's really easy from a socialist standpoint to say, well, of course, they're capitalists. Of course, they're trying to control society. And so socialism takes on this flavor of, of anti-Semitism in opposition to the control of capital, uh, very literally through the banking system. So there's our second thread is this like nationalist, anti-capitalist concern about the direction of your own country sort of thing. So there's lots of different groups of people with different ideals, but they're all agreeing on one thing. Oh, very much so. Yeah. We have a third thread. And uh, this is always a fun one to talk about. Again, going to try and keep it brief. Uh, something that's known as scientific racism. Are you familiar with scientific racism? I don't think I am, and I probably don't want to be, but let's do it anyway. I, I would imagine you're more familiar than you think. This is that thread of lovely people in the 19th century who were doing things like measuring skulls and using that as oh. a justification okay, yeah. for the superiority or inferiority of various ethnic yeah, groups. Yeah, this is when you would crack out, what's the tool that you Calipers. would Calipers. Calipers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're measuring the, the bridge of your nose. It's yeah. going to tell us all we need you to know. You have the cranial length of a stagecoach driver or whatever. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's ridiculous. One of the things that always fascinates me about scientific racism is that it has this capacity to be, to be both very insidious and very funny at the same time. Right. I, I was reading one guy who was saying that people with much darker skin, it, it's in fact uh, nothing but a giant freckle that covers the entirety of their body, which is one interpretation of melanin, I guess. <laughs> but then... You know, he's 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 kind of close to the mark-ish. But then he proceeds to say that it interferes with the balance of their humors, making them more, uh, uh, or giving them more bile under, like, the old four humors system. Right, and which I learned what, about, by the way, on this podcast. Uh -huh. and, and that causes, like, this imbalance and this you know, lack of this and that characteristic. Right. And it's just like, what? where did that part come from? Uh, Anyways, um, scientific racism is, you know, in, in short... It's an attempt to use scientific ideas to sort of categorize people and say that certain personality traits uh, are sort of immutable based on your ethnicity. 
the works of Darwin really exacerbate a lot of this. I should be clear, Darwin himself was not a scientific racist, although there are a number of passages from his works that are very easily interpreted that way. It just sort of threw a little bit of fuel on the fire there. Mm. He also tends to use the word race in two very different ways, which makes things really difficult. Mm. So, for example, the difference between, you know, saying the European race and saying like the Spanish race, where he's just talking about like the nationality, like the Spanish people. Right. It causes some very difficult issues in in uh, interpretation of his work. So anyway, we can leave it there. But this scientific race racism gets heavily applied to the Jewish people like heavily applied. There's already a tradition of certain features being thought of as common to Jewish people. Um, you know, the large nose tropes and all that stuff. Uh, the, you know, the classic anti-Semitism we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that stuff just gets rolled into this whole like cranial capacity nonsense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's this third field of people who are convinced of their own rightness in this romantic uh, scientific tradition that, you know, the the white race is superior for all of these very, you know, empirical reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's complete garbage and it's very dangerous and leads to eugenics and all sorts of terrible things. I don't have the timing in my head. Are humors still a thing? They shouldn't be. Not at this point, right? No, we should be away from that. that. Yeah, long past that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The the freckle guy, I think he was a little bit earlier. Okay. Yeah, I think he was before like the real like medical revolution in the 1850s. Right. I mean, it hasn't been long since. (laughs) No, not really. Uh, There's still a few hangers on. (laughs) Anyway, I feel like we've probably got just about everything that we need to know in terms of background. Like all, all of these three thread, threads kind of come together in uh, one guy named Edouard Drummond, who is the publisher of a newspaper called uh, La Libre Parole, and it's uh, uh, the free word, uh, basically. And it is just this this rag of a newspaper that just publishes nothing but anti-Semitic garbage week in and week out. Like the if you if you ever look it up, it'll have like the first photo that comes up is like the most racist caricature on the front of a newspaper you've ever seen. Um, it, it, it's wild, but like this discourse has become mainstream in French society at this point. So these three types of anti-Semitism are all happening at the same time. This guy is incorporating all three of them into his newspaper. Uh, the general uh, uh, impression of Jewish people in French society, considering you know all the other things that are going on, right? Like the economic troubles, troubles of the late 19th century, the defeat by Germany, the uh, the newness of the Republic, the scandals that are going on, uh, the, the the Panama scandal. Two of the men that were handing out bribes to military officials were Jewish. And it's like, well, there it is. There's your smoking gun if you're one of these people, right? Right. And it all comes to a head. So when the general staff is conducting an investigation of this leak and they come across the only Jewish employee at the headquarters. Who also, I guess, meets all of those other qualifications or... uh Who is Alsatian, who is Jewish, who is uh, uh, too curious for his own good, which and and a lot of these things that they're saying about him, by the way, are not really traits that he exhibits. They're things that kind of get attributed to him Mm. on account of him being Jewish. You know, he's he's their fall guy. He's the perfect candidate to be the leak. And so they just sort of stop looking. Evidence be damned. More or less, because they don't find any like they they start looking. 
they start looking. The, the statistics section is being run, though, by uh, a staunch anti-Semite at this point. So he's he's all for going after Dreyfus. No problems. Um, they appoint this guy, a uh, major, uh, Dupatie Duclam, who is is just, he's got some wild ideas about the, way the, the ways that investigations work, right? He takes that note and he uh, just looks at handwriting samples from everybody in the, in the office. And Dreyfus's kind of sort of matches but not really but he decides it's close enough anyways and so they bring in a real handwriting expert and they say no it's not Dreyfus and so they go what do you know (laughs) and they send him away like they're so intent on on pinning it on Dreyfus like they don't have any further evidence though they they bring in (laughs) they bring in a man named Alphonse Bertillon who is like the father of using basically biometrics in uh, criminal investigation. He's the guy that came up with the mugshot. He's not a handwriting expert, but they ask him because he has more clout, I guess. And he goes, well, I, I suppose it could be Dreyfus. It you know, looks like it could be. And so they go, great. They call the man in to the office without telling him what's going on. They lock him in a room and they ask him to confess to this crime. At one point, Dupati sets a revolver in front of him and suggests that he commits suicide rather than face disgrace. Just let that sink in for a second. Mm -hmm. Dreyfus says no. He says he wants to live in order to prove his own innocence. He is not biting. Which is impressive, because he he was held overnight. Like, it was a long interrogation. Like, it's it's not a small thing. And that's a really difficult thing to put up with. A lot of people crack under those circumstances, innocent or not. We all know the confessions under duress are <laughs> always legit. Extremely good evidence. They decide to arrest him anyway, despite the lack of a, con- a, a confession. He's held for a court martial. His apartment is searched. His wife is sworn to secrecy because he's, she's told that if word gets out about this, it could mean war between France and Germany because of the sensitivity of the material. And night and day, he's kept in a cell, interrogated over and over by Dupati, asked to confess on zero zero evidence other than his handwriting sort of looks like the handwriting from a torn up note found in a waste paper basket in a German embassy. I think here's a really good place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll look at the actual progression of the investigation, the discourse about it. Now that we have like all these pieces to work with and, and really get into like why this is such an interesting case. So sounds good. All right, back on HI 101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we've been talking about, like, mostly not the Dreyfus case. <laughs> a lot of lead up. A lot of lead up, but a lot of things that, you know, now that we've gone through all of them, you, you can kind of see how they all sort of converge on this one investigation in this weird way. There's a lot of anxieties about the state of France and uh, the role of Jewish people in France and, you know, the role of military in France and all, all of these disparate things kind of coming together in this one this one little investigation that the military seems to have gotten a little over eager on yeah i mean i want to say wrong place wrong time but it almost feels wrong to even put it like that like it's Uh, yeah i I know what you mean it's it's not it's not his fault yeah yeah but but he is almost the perfect fall guy for this crime sounds like it yeah In, in fact they essentially put together a list of their ideal suspect and then they compared it against the staff and <laughs> Dreyfus happened to match up. Like it's, it's a little wild that way. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't imagine being in this man's shoes. Like 
it's 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 so surreal um if it wasn't clear from the the first part of this i'm, I'm gonna go ahead and spoil the ending here but dreyfus did not do this <laughs> it yeah, wasn't I- it wasn't Dreyfus. I, I had made that assumption. Yeah. Okay. It, it's it's more just like, you know, just 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 to be clear, it's it's not him. He didn't do this. This <laughs> isn't like, and they got it right. And isn't that awkward for everyone? No, um, <laughs> it's, it's not that at all. He he did not do any of this stuff. The poor man is stuck in jail for, you know, two weeks being interrogated over and over by this Dupati and 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 not cracking, which is wild. Because here's the thing: they're holding him illegally. They're doing so under this sort of pretense that is not really well tested or anything like that, but basically saying that like, well, he is military. So that means that he falls under the military police in the jurisdiction of like a court martial rather than the civilian courts. And because of the sensitivity of the issue at hand, then there's certain normal procedures that we don't necessarily have to follow mm. because, you know, what's more important, a couple of civil liberties or, or national security. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Dreyfus's wife is basically the only person outside of this that really knows what's going on for a good amount of time. He's being kept in solitary. So it's not even like he's like in a you know general holding or anything like that because they can't risk the word getting out. Holding someone in solitary confinement for two weeks and interrogating them night and day is like an intense ordeal to go through. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to go through. Finally, the uh, uh, some of the the news of the arrest breaks in La Libre Parole, that that uh, anti-Semitic newspaper that we talked about. And of course, the way that it gets out is somebody. I don't know who actually leaked it. I'm I'm assuming here that there is somebody on staff that finds out about this and goes. Everybody needs to know about this. Like, the, here's here's more smoking gun evidence. Look at the, you know, look at what the Jews are doing, right. basically. Yeah. I'm assuming that's how it gets out. But that's certainly the tack that the paper takes with it. Uh, why wouldn't they? Um, that's kind of their MO. And on October 29th, word gets out in the paper. And two days later, Dreyfus's older brother, uh, Mathieu, finally finds out what's happened to his brother over the last several weeks and manages to hire him a lawyer because he hasn't had a lawyer this entire time. Right. He's been refused counsel. I know it's the 19th century. (laughs) There are still some like civil rights that did exist at that point in time that are being violated here. I just want to stress that a little bit. Now they're not going to get him to court martial until nearly Christmas. And in that period of time between the actual court martial and when the news breaks to the newspapers, this case is largely prosecuted, like in the press and largely in the anti-Semitic press. The The minister of war actually goes on record. He was a general, by the way. I forgot to mention that before. So mm. it, like the, it would still be a civilian position, but he's holding a military title, I suppose, is the easiest way to to say that sure yeah um yeah general mercier basically comes out and declares him guilty in the newspapers like there's a quote in the newspapers of saying yeah dreyfus is is guilty so good jerry tampering there bud yeah like it oh it's disgusting um you know there's character attacks on the man it's talking about how he's always shifty you know always scheming you know insert the usual buzzwords here right there's a lot of like nationalistic tones you know we have to 
preserve the 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 integrity of France. And like you can sort of see all those three threads, right? Like the the old school Catholic anti-Semitism, the the new like socialist nationalist anti-Semitism, and the the even newer like you know scientific anti-Semitism, all, all coming together, flavors. right? And and each of these is going to speak to different people. But the result is this like fairly strong public sentiment against Dreyfus, where it's like, well, they there's also, you know, that that little bit of any time anyone gets arrested, which is, well, they wouldn't have arrested him if he hadn't done it. Right. That's always a, a risk in having a free press around a, a case of this magnitude. So do the people know what he's been accused of exactly? They have a general sense that there is some sort of uh, uh, espionage. That has happened here. Right, but the details are that part is not available to the press. Correct. Okay. Uh, that's all very much being held under wraps as like a national security issue, right? Right. Because the, the artillery that they're developing hasn't actually, like, no one knows about it yet. Yeah, so, yeah. So any of those details are being kept under wraps. It's pretty safe to assume that anything espionage related uh, in France at this point in time is going to have something to do with Germany. But, you know, from there, they don't have many details. That being said, that's... The vast majority of the picture here, at least in terms of like salient details go, right? Right. Uh, you can kind of put together they're assuming that this captain has sold military secrets to the Germans. Like that's about the only option here. Right. They decide to uh, prosecute him in a closed court, claimed again for national security. But what they're really hiding is a total lack of evidence whatsoever they do not have anything to go on they can't they, they can't they can't prosecute this in open court because they don't have anything and they know that it would make them look like idiots <laughs> which they were let me go on record they're idiots yeah this is dumb and it's it's kind of wild because when they get into court Dreyfus's defense is actually really strong. He provides a lot of like character witnesses who will vouch for the fact that he is actually a very patriotic officer, that he's served with uh, distinction, that he has done all the things you're supposed to do as a high-ranking officer. Also asking questions like, but why would he even do this? Which they don't actually have an answer for. They have zero motive whatsoever here. Zero motive, zero evidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's really difficult. Also, the only, well, they have one piece of evidence, right? They have the note which doesn't actually match up. Right. Now, they bring uh, Bertillon back to testify in this case, and he's had time to sort of think over this whole very problematic, like, writing doesn't actually match up thing. And here's what he comes up with. It's a theory called auto-forgery. And he claims that what Dreyfus did was that he knew there was a chance that someday that letter could be intercepted. And so he tried to write like somebody forging his own writing. Wow. That's amazing. But this guy is like a preeminent, like forensic expert at this point in time. Right. And this really rattles the uh, the judges on this case. They're like, wait, is this a possible thing? And Bertillon is like, yes, absolutely. It's definitely true. <laughs> but like, that's such a weird argument because it, it self-defeats. And if, if like, there's no point in analyzing handwriting, if somebody can... Hmm. See, I, I, I think I see the problem here. You're thinking about it rationally. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'll stop. I'll you know, stop. <laughs> rookie error. You hate to see it. Uh. <laughs> but like, he's invalidating his own argument if he thinks that's true. 
I agree. <laughs> yes, it's it's ridiculous. But again, we're in the we're in the very early years of forensics, and this is a guy who's actually helped to create a lot of the very helpful and very legitimate tactics that are being used at this point in time. Now, Bertillon was a hack in a lot of areas, but there are still things that he developed that are still used to this day. Now, a lot of them are more common sense mugshots, for example. But I don't know. It's it's hard to. It's hard to not be an expert in something and have an expert walk in and tell you something is definitely true. And to still have the confidence to call bull on that. And I think a lot of people would like to say that, like, oh, but I could do that. And I think a lot of people would be wrong. Um, you know, a, a, appeal to authority is a, is a very real thing. And, and we, we can sit here and, and, and laugh about it. But, you know, I it's not out of the realm of possibility, right? Yep. And and I don't think that the judges on this case were, at least on this first round, were necessarily looking to convict Dreyfus out of the gate. I think that this is actually a piece of evidence that swayed things. It's certainly not the only thing. This officer, a uh, Major Henri, comes forward and maybe it's Henry. It's, it's spelt the English way uh, with a Y, not mm. an I, mm -hmm. but he's French. I'm assuming it's Henri. Anyways, he comes forward and basically testifies that an unnamed, anonymous, credible source uh, accused Dreyfus to him. Yeah. How convenient. Very convenient. But that's not even the nail in the coffin. The nail in the coffin is the secret dossier of documents, which is handed to the judges. And basically they're told, like, we can't present this even in front of the defendant because some of the things in here are too sensitive. And basically the judges go away with this, do this dossier and come back and 13 minutes later convict Dreyfus. Hmm. This dossier wasn't entirely declassified until 2013. Now, we did know more or less what was in there. We, we knew more or less what was in there in the time period we're going to talk about here. But it turns out that a lot of the uh, documents in there, it, it started off relatively small. It built over the years. This is the main piece of evidence against Dreyfus throughout this entire thing. The main pieces of evidence in there are correspondence between a German diplomat, uh, Max von Schwarzkopfen, who was gay, and he was writing to his uh, well, his lover, Alexandro Panizzardi, who is a uh, uh, an Italian national, and they were trading uh, secrets back and forth, and they had been spying on them for some time, and there were sort of vague references that could be referring to this information changing hands and could be referring to Dreyfus and it was convincing enough at this point in time that they decided that they would convict based on the testimony of, of sworn expert. accusal expert opinions yeah uh, and this this uh, secret dossier they mm. decided yes he's he's guilty he is the person who wrote this note and Dreyfus is found guilty December 22nd of 1894 the death penalty has been abolished in France at this point in time, a fact which many in the public and in the press would bemoan in the coming days. So instead, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. He was shipped off to French Guiana off the coast of South America. He was put on a tiny island called Devil's Island, where he was the only occupant other than his guards. He lived in a 13-foot square stone hut that he was unable to leave. Uh, he was allowed correspondence in that was carefully censored by the French government. He was allowed to write letters out, though it was anybody's guess whether or not they would actually make it mm. to their destinations. And 
Beginning in 1896, when there were rumors of his escape in the British media, he spent 24 hours a day shackled inside that hut. He became extremely ill, uh, was not in good health at all, and and uh, I think goes without saying, mentally in a uh, uh, disastrous place over mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. I struggle to comprehend what this man went through in these years following the sentencing. It is a uh, gross mis- miscarriage of justice. It is uh, uh, he he is owed so much for those lo- that that lost time, but that's that's what ended up happening to him, and. In a lot of other stories, that might be where things sort of ended, and he might have been kind of a footnote a little bit. He might have been the sort of thing that you might hear about in a very specific history course, or a thing that you would hear a lot about if you're on the wrong forums on the internet. Right. And that would be about it. But it's not. We're going to keep going. There is a lot more to this story. His brother, Mathieu, never doubted his innocence and decided to continue uh, fighting for his acquittal. Which, you know, is again one of those things I think a lot of people would hear and go like, yeah, absolutely, I would do the same for for my brother or whatever. But except like he was kind of convicted by a court-martial on evidence that no one had, uh, like nobody knows what evidence he's convicted on. He was convicted very decisively. Like that's, I don't know, there's a lot of people out there who would go like, I don't know, I guess he did it. I guess I didn't really know him. Yeah, when when the public can't even see this damning evidence that that resulted in the conviction, they have to assume it was pretty powerful stuff. You would think, right? Yeah. There's a reason that open courts are a fundamental part of a free society. (laughs) Jeez, yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's an important part. I, I think people kind of overlook it every once in a while, but this is the sort of situation that is allowed to flourish in a closed court system. Now, yeah, I, I understand that military courts are a whole different ballgame, even in modern society, but like, yeah, there's still rules and regulations for all of this stuff, right? Like, there's still the potential for oversight, for, you know, appeal and things like that. Uh, it's, it's, uh, closed courts are not a good thing. They, they result in a lot of abuse. So anyways, uh, yeah, Mathieu can, continues to try and find any recourse for his brother. Basically it sticks by him. It's, it's kind of amazing. Starts digging into the whole thing and he's not really getting anywhere, but all this digging does prompt a bit of a response from the statistics section. Mm, probably not a response he would want. Not that kind of response. Okay, okay. They get a little bit worried. Hmm. They go, okay, well, we're probably fine. Everything's probably fine. This guy doesn't know anything. But on the off chance that he did happen to, I don't know, appeal the case or like successfully request documentation or anything like that, if he somehow got his hands on anything, we'd probably have a bit of a problem on our hands. So what we should do is just start doing a little bit of digging. And uh, we know he's guilty. Obviously, everybody knows he's guilty, right? Everybody knows? Good. Well, since we know he's guilty, there's got to be other evidence out there that says that he's guilty, right? So let's go back, find some more evidence that he was guilty, uh, and just pad out the file a little bit, just retroactively. Like, we all know he's guilty, but, you know, just in case. So now they're actually doing some extra investigation in spite of themselves. That's how confident they are. The uncertainty around this case is extraordinary and speaks to that uncertainty that we talked about in the first half, right? That is sort of on an administrative level, this lack of confidence in their own authority, in their own sort of way forward a little bit, right? Like this defensiveness 
And granted, they've been through a lot of revolutions in the last hundred years. <laughs> but there's supposed to be this certainty around a conviction, especially something of this magnitude, convicting someone of treason and sending them off for life to a, a deserted island to probably, let's face it, probably die of some weird disease, right? That's probably endgame here, right? Yeah. You know, you're supposed to be sure that you're doing the right thing. That should be the the bar, right? Yeah. I, th- I, think. I Absolutely. <laughs> this retroactive investigation is it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an odd move. Normally when you see a miscarriage of justice like this, that's that. Like it's done, like it's closed. But no, not this time. And here's where they mess up so very badly. The statistics section, I mean. There's a new head of military intelligence, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Georges Picard, who is a zealot who is a true believer in the, uh, the, the central command, who is, you know, he, he is like a poster boy French nationalist. And you would think that this would be a good thing, right? Because he should toe the line. But he's the type of zealot who kind of backfires on them a little bit. Because when, when he's handed this investigation, you know, just look into it a little bit more, find the evidence that we're missing, he takes to it with gusto. Like, he's ready to go, right? Thing is, he doesn't know how thin the evidence is before he takes on the case. He has no idea. He just assumes that everything was squared away properly, right? And so he's like, yep, I'm going to nail that guy to the wall. No problem. I've got this. And he gets his hands on the secret file and on the slip and he realizes that there isn't really anything there. And he goes, okay, that's okay. This is fine. This is still fine. And he starts digging. And he finds something really interesting, which is an unrelated document that was recovered by the statistics section from the same source, uh, Schwarzkoppen. And it's a telegram between Schwarzkoppen and a French major, Charles Esterhazy. And he looks at it. And he looks at the torn up note and he realizes that they're written in the exact same handwriting. And it's not like he had actually done that much work. It was just there. It was just another thing in the Schrotzkoppen file. And he looked at it and he went, oh, you got to be kidding me. And instead of sweeping everything under the rug, which is kind of what his superiors expected him to do here, he turned around and like he, he was so shattered by the whole thing that he went, all right. Fine, let's find out what really happened here. He's upset with his command for, you know, botching the entire investigation. He's upset with Esterhazy for getting off the hook for espionage, which he's continued to commit yeah. since the uh, since the one that was discovered and yeah, yeah. nailed on, uh, pinned to Dreyfus. He's going to go after this guy. Esterhazy is this interesting guy. Uh, he is not Jewish. He came up in the uh, French military during the Franco-Prussian War, where I uh, remember that Battle of Sedan, where Napoleon III was captured. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot, there's a lot of officer deaths at that battle, like an impactful number of deaths, which meant that there were a lot of people that got promoted very quickly, kind of higher than they normally would have during that time. He sort of rode that wave up. And despite all that, had this weird like resentment for the French army because as fast as he came up, felt that he wasn't being uh, promoted fast enough. Mm. He also had a lot of monetary issues, a lot of debt. 
you know, had married a relatively wealthy young woman at one point, burned through the entire dowry before the wedding even, you know, was completed, started dipping into like her family funds, got himself divorced because of it, uh, was in the hole and decided to try and get himself out of the hole in a tried, tested and true manner, gambling and playing the stock market, which always works 100% of the time. Yeah. So now he not only... (laughs) Now he not only owes money, he also owes money to the wrong sorts of people. And he decides that there's really only one way that he can really make a lot of good, fast money. And that's by selling military secrets to the Germans. There's a reason that, you know, when you get into like Cold War stuff, the people that they look for in terms of like security risks are often people in bad financial situations. Right. It makes you very vulnerable. It's not like often espionage isn't about allegiance it's often about very pragmatic issues. Things like I owe a lot of money and could be bought off very easily to relieve this debt. Right. When you when you look at Esterhazy in like in retrospect, it's kind of like, oh, of course this is the guy. He's selling like tons of like very low-level secrets, like nothing, like very, very inconsequential stuff, and not getting that much money for it. He tries selling like one big thing, which is this artillery, almost gets discovered very luckily doesn't have it pinned on him and continues to sell low-level secrets because it was too much risk for him. Right. Right? And it's just like, it's so obvious. Like, it feels so obvious. Again, I know hindsight 2020 and stuff, but like, there's the motive, right? Like, there's the motive. There's the uh, evidence. Yeah. There's the matching handwriting. And and like, here you go. This is an actual real case. Investigate this guy. He kind of sounds like he might crumble under about two minutes of investigating. Like, that interrogation is not going to take long, I feel like. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, Picard gets to the end of his uh, his investigation and concludes, like, yes, Esterhazy is definitely the guy. Like, this is for sure the guy. And he goes, all right, I'm going to do the right thing here. I'm going to bring this to the attention of my superiors and say, listen, there's just been a terrible mistake here. We did the wrong thing. We need to make this right. And he brought all this evidence to them and they went, ooh, wow, hmm. oh, this is, this isn't good, is it? Well, um, leave this with us and uh, we'll yeah, care. we'll, you, we'll take uh, care of all of this. You go do something else. Well, what the, the something else was get transferred to Tunisia so he would be conveniently out of the way. Wow. Not suspicious at all. So, okay, fine. They don't want to look like a bunch of buffoons. Mm-hmm. But don't they still really want to do something about the guy who actually did it? You know, you would think so, wouldn't you? Like you don't want that person to continue operating. You would really, really, really think so, like, wouldn't you? justice for the wrongfully accused painfully aside for a moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. <laughs> you still want to get rid of the actual leak? You sure would think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... There's there's a lot of things that are happening here, right? You have a military who believes that it knows better than everybody else, who very clearly has just made a massive error. You have a public who is convinced through very anti-Semitic reasoning that the right person has been charged for this crime. So let's put you in charge of the French military for a moment. Let's say that you're not even involved in like the fabrication of the uh, the evidence and everything, right? And this case comes across your your table, right? And you find out that your department has committed a grave miscarriage of justice, looks real bad, convicted the wrong man, a perfectly honorable officer who, I didn't even mention this part of the sentencing, had to go through a public humiliation to be stripped of his rank before he was shipped off to 
French Guyana. Like they, they take him out. They have scored his saber uh, beforehand so they can snap it over their knee in front of him. They they tear off all of his military insignia. This is all in front of a crowd. Yeah, it's Ugh. it's very like it's designed to be as humiliating as possible. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they've, they've gone through all of this. And if this was a normal case you would already be at a point where it would be incredibly humiliating to go out there and say, listen, we messed up, right? We didn't have enough evidence. We convicted the wrong man. Now we know who the right man is. We're going to make this right. Put on top of that, the fact that if you go out there and tell everyone, hey, we thought that we had a Jewish officer who committed this treason. Turns out it's not him. It's this other French officer. The Jewish man is innocent. You have to say this to an 1890s French crowd who is so roiling in, in, in anti-Semitism at this point and has been so riled up by this anti-Semitic press that, I mean, how are they going to take this? What, what are you going to assume they're going to say about this? I sadly don't disagree with the very pragmatic reaction. Right, because they're, what they're going to say is, well, you've been bought off, right? This is part of the, this is part of the conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. And so what do you Disgusting, do? Disgusting, but... Yes, oh, absolutely. No, everything we're talking about here is terrible. Yeah. Yes, but you're right. That's 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 the position that they're in, and that's what makes it so difficult to just say, listen, this was wrong. We were anti-Semitic about this. We didn't have enough evidence. We messed up. Here's the real culprit. In 1897, evidence against Estherazy leaks to the press. Again, don't know who did this, but as much as I've been talking about sort of this anti-Semitic sentiment, there, there is a large segment of the population known as Dreyfusals who are supporters of Dreyfus. They don't believe that he's done anything wrong. And this is mainly whipped up, you know, at the beginning, very grassroots by Mathieu, who is saying like, nah, he, he didn't do anything. Like, this isn't, this isn't right. Well, they start really gaining steam when this evidence gets leaked in the press that maybe it wasn't actually him. Maybe it was this other guy. There is a segment of, you know, as much as I'm painting like a very dire picture of French society at this point, there is that segment of, of society that we talked about at the beginning, right? Those people who see themselves as French nationalists in the tradition of the revolution, right? In the, in the tradition of uh, secularism, in the tradition of republicanism, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, all of that stuff, right? right? That is still a strong tradition within France. And we are kind of modernizing here. And there are people who are going like, listen, some of this old, like weird, like medieval sentiment towards like, you know, well poisoning Jewish people is nonsense. Like, what are we doing here? This is like the piece of ammunition they need to really like get that get that movement going, right? That is that is the spark in the tinder. The evidence that's presented is it's actually like a copy of the 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 letter gets out to the public. And it, it's the second letter between Schwarzkoppen and uh Esterazi, the one that we know is Esterazi. They don't know who's uh who's leaking these things? Not this one, no. Jeez. Um but this one, you know who identifies it to the public? is a banker that Esterazi owes money to. He says, I know that guy's writing. That's for sure him. <laughs> Which I love that detail. Yeah. And it's like, th- this is, this is now, now the cat's out of the bag. Now they have to do something. They have, like, at the very least, even if you ignore the whole artillery scandal, now you have a French officer who is corresponding with a German diplomat. A German diplomat, by the way, that isn't 
I'm not sure how widely known it's to the it is to the public, but it is known within the French government is uh, homosexual, which is a massive issue for them. They see that as both a moral failing failing and a security issue. They're in general, gay people are considered easier to blackmail. Yeah. Okay. Well, in a society that frowns upon yeah, it, yeah, I, no, I, it's, it's objectively up. true. Um, anyways, I'm, I'm making you all sorts of, uh, uncomfortable tonight, you know aren't I? I, I, I apologize for that. I don't that, spend but... enough time in history and every now and again we take a walk, uh-huh. uh, through those old streets and I'm just like, oh man, they're real dirty, huh? This is, oh God. Nah, just puts, just puts today into, into a different context, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. Anyways, yes, <laughs> he's corresponding with a known gay German diplomat about military issues. Like, you can't ignore that at this point. Yeah. Now, they decide, like, the next best thing that they can do is go into damage control mode and deny that this issue, the Estazi leak, has anything to do with the Dreyfus case. These are two separate incidents of, of uh, 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 espionage now. Right. As far as the military intelligence is concerned. I mean, it seems like a really easy thing to dig up that torn note. Yeah. And do a handwriting check. Oh, you would think so. But not everybody knows that that handwritten note exists. Wasn't it a key piece of evidence? I'm air quoting here, just so everybody knows. In the Dreyfus case. Right. Yes. But the public doesn't know about it. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, fair. They don't know the evidence that they were convicted on. It was a closed uh, closed trial. Mm Mm-hmm. Now there's rumors circulating all over the place. The general staff is is leaky as an old bucket. Like there there's everything is getting out, but they don't have any proof of that, right? And you need the actual letter to match it against. So November fifteenth of eighteen ninety seven, Matthew Dreyfus uh, opens a formal complaint, basically uh, requesting that the courts reopen uh, uh, the investigation, advocating for a miscarriage of justice, basically, which is a reasonable ground for uh, appeal. Mm-hmm. Picard actually returns from Tunisia on leave specifically to support the case for Dreyfus Whoa. because he's been so convinced by what he found. Like he's seen, he's seen the actual evidence. Yeah. He's one of the very few people who has. And, you know, at great personal risk to himself, he's speaking out on behalf of Dreyfus saying like, no, he didn't do it. But you also said he's like a poster boy. Not anymore. No. This whole thing has dis- disillusioned him yeah, so badly. Fair enough. No, he, he doesn't. I mean... To some extent, yes. I mean, there's there's still that belief in the institution. This is sort of a... I, I think Picao sees this as a return to, like, weed out a few bad actors uh, so we can get everything back on track. He's been the victim of some unfortunate circumstances. But if we can just get the real story out of here, you know, then we get the Third Republic back on track and everything's good. Right. You know, but that aligns with, uh, with what Mathieu is trying to do. So, great. Now, the... Anti-Dreyfusards are convinced that there's a Jewish-backed anti-French conspiracy that's being led by Picard and that Picard has been bought off by the Jewish conspiracy. I'm, I'm gesturing wildly, <laughs> widely to the entire room in a sort of dismissive way. Um, you know, it's it's any any time I talk about like the 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 anti-Semitic press here, just like imagine like what the worst things could be that they would be saying. And you're probably exactly right, because this stuff has not changed over the past hundred years. It has not changed one iota. It is exactly the same as it used to be. Esterazi is put on trial very shortly after this. They the 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 military intelligence decides that the best thing to do is just like rush this through, get it over with, call it a day. 
So they basically put on a show trial for him, January 10th of 1898. And more or less on orders, he's acquitted of all charges of espionage. They're worried that if he's guilty, there's going to be more questions into the relationship. And so they want to pin all of the espionage on Dreyfus and keep everything just like a tight lid on this. And you're looking at me like this is a bad decision. And that's because, yes, it is. That is a poor way of handling all of this. Mm -hmm. You could have maybe still kept these two things separate if you had just acknowledged that he'd done something bad and sent him to jail. But acquitting him of everything? Acquitted him of everything. They deliberated for three minutes. They were ordered to let him go. I'm not sure that those orders necessarily exist anywhere, that there'd be like proof I can point to. They were ordered to let him go. There was no there was no evidence uh, or rather there was a ton of evidence yeah. against him. Yeah. There was no evidence for acquittal. There was no defense there. Uh, he should have been arrested at that exact moment. You know, who was arrested was Picard. Well, because he came back and he lied about a bunch of stuff. That's perjury. Goodness gracious. They just dig in their heels in. Esterhazy moved to Britain immediately to be beyond the reach of the uh, French legal system, which honestly probably good move on his part. Yeah, probably not really understanding how he could possibly be this lucky. Would live the rest of his days in Britain. Never came back to France. Again, probably a good move on his part. Mm -hmm. He might have honestly come out well ahead on this. He might have left a bunch of debt behind. I don't know that part for a fact. I'm just assuming. I don't know how much that stuff follows you around in the 1890s. Uh, anyways that was the guilty party in the in the Dreyfus affair he is the one that did it this is where one of the two things that you told me uh you knew about the Dreyfus affair comes into play something called J'accuse J'accuse what do you know about J'accuse anything not particularly just that it is a factor in that that's literally it and that it's a fun thing to say that I've had some friends say in yes. cases where they want to accuse somebody of something yeah I mean it is a fun thing to exclaim I suppose <laughs> Um, have you heard of a French author uh, named Emile Zola? No. Yeah. Uh, he, one of the more famous writers of the late 19th century. Happened to be a very staunch supporter of Dreyfus. Also happened to be a very close follower of everything that had been going on. Now, one thing I want to be kind of clear about in terms of like press coverage up until this point is that the mainstream press was not really covering all of this in a comprehensive manner. Like a lot of this stuff is making the press, you know, the fact that Dreyfus has been uh, uh, sentenced to life in prison, that he you know, committed espionage, that this uh, trial happened uh, with Estazi, uh, all of that stuff. But it's not, you know, we're, they're not talking about it in a comprehensive way, the way that you and I are, right? And a lot of the stuff that is sort of making its rounds that does connect all of this is either fringe pro Dreyfusard stuff or it's very fringe anti Dreyfusard stuff which both of which are like very questionable right all of this changes uh when Emile Zola writes a 4,500 word open letter on the front page of a mainstream newspaper with the headline Jacques and this um screed I suppose you could call it is a condemnation of the French government and military for uh, gross anti-Semitism. And it details in a very like point by point ma manner, all the things that have happened within the Dreyfus scandal so far and connects all of these things and talks about the evidence as far as people know out in the open. And it's often inaccurate. 
there's a lot of this, as I said, that's coming from like really sketchy sources. But the thrust of it is more or less correct. Zola is not wrong. But now we have an issue on our hands if we're the uh, hypothetical, you know, heads of the military like we were talking about before. Because you now have, as head of the military, you have two options. You can either ignore this and allow public sentiment to potentially turn against you because, uh-oh, this guy kind of has our number this isn't good, like doesn't make us look great, but at least we're not responding to it. Or option two, we can accuse this guy of libel and try to defend ourselves against these charges that he's made, which will help to um, sort of uh, cement our authority in this matter, but is also tenuous in the fact that, again, he's mainly right. And defending against libel is difficult when no lies have been uttered. Yeah, especially when you just didn't have to look that hard. No. To show that this was, was if, just all so horribly wrong. If you have the evidence. Well, that's fair. Here's, here's something that would be unique about taking Zola to trial over libel. He's a civilian. Right. They can't hide behind closed courts anymore. Correct. Yeah. Uh-oh, that's tricky. Uh, what's discovery? <laughs> they're they're gonna do a, a lot of very superficial but analysis into right. all of the evidence that's available, and and both sides get to have access to that evidence before Everything. the trial. That's yeah. that's the that's sort of the fundamental part of discovery. If yeah. you want to bring evidence against somebody in a trial, uh, it, it's kind of very very important that you tell them what evidence you're bringing. Right. Sort of a, a fundamental aspect of, of the, the, the modern surprise, legal system. The surprise evidence in legal TV shows. Oh, never happens. It's 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 extremely Yeah, it's it's very illegal. Yeah, it's just not a thing. You can't do that. Um no, it's it, everybody needs to know it. So here's the problem. If somebody is accusing you in a in an open setting, in a in a written setting, of of uh having bad evidence or fabricated evidence, and you want to defend yourself against that charge. How do you do that without also giving the person the bad evidence? Yeah, you, you well, you would have to produce evidence that supports your claim. Or no evidence at all. Or no evidence at all. Which is a poor defense against libel in which the onus is usually on uh, the person who is, is claiming libel against themselves. Now, I should be clear about this. Zola knew all of this when he published this. He was intentionally antagonizing the, the French military. Was he hoping this exact thing would happen? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. He was willing to pay fines. He was willing to go to jail to open them up to this vulnerability, which is a fascinating thing. Mm -hmm. It really, really interests me. Yeah. I actually forgot to mention an aspect of, of the Estarazi uh, uh, trial earlier that, that I should mention at this point. Which is that the evidence that they that they brought to the to the trial against Estazi included a letter between Schwarzkoppen and his lover, which remember Major Major Henri, the guy who claimed that there was this unknown. Uh, yeah, yeah, they actually took a letter uh, between Schwarzkoppen and uh, uh, Panazardi uh, that they had in their possession, basically cut out the header and the signature and wrote. A different letter, like very obviously in his own handwriting, like on slightly different paper. It was very bad that 
mentioned Dreyfus in this so-called letter, basically saying, like, if anyone asks you if you know who Dreyfus is, say no, because we don't want to be implicated in his treason. It's just like, it's so ham handed. Mm -hmm. It's so bad. But like, that's the evidence. That's the because it was in the in the Estazi evidence that was brought against him, that bad evidence would now be potentially discoverable in the libel case. So they decided that the best way to go about this was to collude with the government to make the trial as favorable to the military as possible, by which they mean very specifically restricting the terms of of what they're claiming Zola lied about and uh, basically excluding all other forms of evidence. So we're not going to talk about the Dreyfus thing. We're just going to talk about a few um, anti-Semitic charges that are being made. So what we can get out of this, hopefully, is a conviction of libel, which discredits Zola, without reopening the discussion around Dreyfus. Okay, I guess there's some strategy there. It's it's desperate, man. Oh, it's, it's not desperate. good. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the long and the short of all of this is that Zola is found guilty of libel, but he has really good lawyers on this case and they managed to continually enter uh bits and pieces into testimony during this trial where it's like you know they they get a a witness up to the stand and zola's lawyers would start asking them about aspects of the dreyfus investigation or the esterazi uh investigation and it would consistently be stricken from the record but like it's an open court everyone's hearing all of this stuff and it essentially has its intended effect Mm. of opening up this conversation and opening up this idea in the public. You know, Zola gets a fine and a year in jail for this. Now, he ends up appealing this case all the way to the Supreme Court, but before the case is even heard, he uh, ends up fleeing the country just to avoid any further uh, jail time, spend some time in Britain. Now, this, like all of this is still being debated like in the public, right? Now, but now you have it spreading out into like the mainstream papers as well as these fringe papers, and everyone has an opinion on this. Like, did Dreyfus do this? Is Dreyfus being set up? And a lot of this stuff sort of falls along those uh, progressive versus monarchist lines that we talked about. Mm. Monarchists tending to believe that Dreyfus did it, progressives tending to believe that he didn't. Uh, They're seeing the military as this sort of vestige of old France, um, which in a lot of ways it is, right? It's got all these old rich families running things. Uh, It is anti-Republican. Like it's, it's, it's playing into all these social tensions that we talked about before, right? Whereas the um, anti-Dreyfusades are looking at this and they're, they're through a lens of anti-Semitism and nationalism and concerns about Germany infiltrating its way into French, uh, you know, secrets and, uh, and concerns about non-French people, whatever that means, infiltrating their way into society and weakening it in some way, right? right? Uh, secularism being a weakening force, uh, Judaism being a weakening force, all of this stuff is, is sort of being drawn out in this conversation, right? And it's not just in who Dreyfus is, but as we've talked about, each misstep that the military has made along the way opens up more discussions and more stress points in this social conversation that make it more and more difficult and more and more divisive. And it's kind of a wild thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's all this, it's all this, it's this whole time period just like encapsulated in this one little issue. Right. Did Dreyfus do it or no? Did the military set him up or no? Is there a conspiracy behind all of this or no? Zola, being a a famous author at this point in time, is friends with Oscar Wilde, who 
you know, I think if I had been just told this by somebody without any sources rather than like actually reading about this, I would have thought this doesn't sound right. But Oscar Wilde being a, a prominent writer and relatively well-off man just seems to have known many of the gay men in Europe and had a friend that knew Panizzardi. And so through about three degrees of separation, he had access to Schwarzkoppen, who started leaking him documents. And Zola started leaking them to the French press that was supporting Dreyfus. Now, nothing, you know, completely nail in the coffin or anything like that, but made for a very strong case. Right. It sounds like a lot of this is very lopsided in favor of Dreyfus, but you have to remember that you have a military and a government who is constantly feeding through official channels anti-Dreyfus rhetoric. Jeez, yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's what we're countering here. Right. Like, it sounds like such a slam dunk as we're talking about it because we have all the facts, but they don't. What they have is this, uh, there is a conspiracy here, and it's between the military and the government to send Dreyfus up the river. Like, that's in their best interest. It is now in their best interest to lock up an innocent man and let a free man go free. And that's what they've been just pumping out the official uh, uh, mouthpieces. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, a uh, guilty man go free. Sorry. Thank you. Um, but but yeah, that's that's what's been coming from all the official sources. And that's difficult to to counter. And now you have a situation where people who have the who have the right idea seem like the crazy ones because they're talking about the conspiracy. Right. Right. Even though there is one. It makes your head hurt after a while. Yep. <laughs> Finally, in uh, 1898, I mean, like like I said, there's like riots over this, right? Like there's actually like violence in the street. There is public debate. There's all of this stuff going. The Supreme Court finally agrees to hear the appeal on the 1894 ruling against Dreyfus. And, you know, the military had been trying to avoid this as much as possible. The government had been trying. They tried every dirty trick they could think of to keep it out of there. You know, does the Supreme Court, because again, it's a very new government, right? Does the Supreme Court have ju uh, jurisdiction over a military court? All those sort of like very fundamental things are being tested because it's not really been tested before. Right. And they're trying to get around it. But they end up hearing the case. And how long uh, has Dreyfus been on this island at this point? Four years. Jeez. Two of which shackled. Uh, at all times. They appoint, the Supreme Court appoints an investigator who's given full access to all evidence, a guy named uh, Cavignac. And both Cavignac and Picard, who uh, is back on the scene, are given full uh, amnesty and protection from military courts and are asked to testify to the Supreme Court about this case. Weren't they trying to charge picard with something yeah they they they, they had managed to find him guilty uh oh, for really? for uh libel i believe it's not it's not exactly libel it's it's a, a similar charge though uh it's about lying while holding military office i, I forget the exact mm. charge but it's something to that effect because they were claiming that he had lied about dreyfus being innocent the the supreme court gets both of them to testify and as soon as they see the evidence and hear the testimony of these two men, they find that everything in the secret file, everything that's been added over the years, the forged letter by Henri, uh, are all completely void. Like, there's nothing here. There's clearly nothing here. They don't really care about uh, the correspondence between, you know, like, none of that stuff. None of it matters because none of it points to Dreyfus in any way, shape, or form. He has no motive. He has no evidence. In fact, he seems like a really unlikely guy to sell out his country. Um, like more so than, than, than the average, 
seems like a stand-up guy. Yeah. <laughs> Sarazi, on the other hand, you know, when when they see all the evidence come to, they come to say the same conclusion that you and I have, which is like, oh yeah, of course it's this guy. Like, of course, this is the guy that sells the secrets, right? Well, now you've got somebody who has all the information and can, I assume, check the handwriting on everything. Yes, correct. Yeah. And is independent of the concerns that the military has here. Now, it's not as though they don't understand the potential political ramifications here, but, you know, it's kind of the Supreme Court's job to be above that to some extent, to take justice over. Anyways, you know, ideally speaking, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they find that Esterhazy is most, most likely guilty, but since he's not in the country anymore, and since that's not the case that they're actually hearing here, they're just hearing uh, the case of whether or not Dreyfus was guilty. So those are two different things, right? On June 3rd of 1899, they overturned the original 1894 ruling. They uh, find him uh, not guilty of these charges. And uh, Dreyfus himself knew absolutely none of this. He had been not he had not been allowed any correspondence that even hinted to the fact that there were any supporters for him out there. He had no idea. His it, he he learned about it via being handed an emancipation order by the guards on June 9th of eighteen ninety nine. Wacky. We're not done. Yeah. The moment that Dreyfus sets foot back in France, he's arrested by military police. Who the military. Tribunal has decided to reopen the trial against him. They're effectively ignoring the fact that the, the Supreme Court exists. Like, they're just ignoring that ruling altogether. And it is, again, a complete sham trial, no material evidence, testimony only. They get a whole bunch of guys to line up and say, yep, that's the guy that did it. And they find him guilty again. What the hell? During these proceedings, there's actually an assassination attempt on one of Dreyfus's lawyers. He's shot in the back by somebody out of a crowd. They never caught the guy. Yeah, it is. It is a wild like it's 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 insane to me because, again, they're they're going they're flying in the face of their their judicial system by doing this. And at this point, for what? Like because still trying to save face. The, yeah, I mean, I, it's got to be right, because the, the issue of, you know, potentially seeing unrest or loss of confidence in them, you know, that they were risking before by admitting defeat, that's gone because the Supreme Court has stripped that from them. Right. Like, that's not there anymore. Like, there's already people saying, like, yep, here's the, here's the conspiracy at work. Like, that's happening. I'm not sure what they're... It's, it's, it's saving face. That's what it is. They are trying to assert authority. They're trying to assert correctness. Just trying to prove they're right here by continuing to lie. It is, it is a wild thing that's happening here. And the prosecution in this, like, they're so desperate for anything. They go as far as to contact the German government to ask them if they have any evidence of Dreyfus colluding with them. Can you imagine being the guy getting that call? <laughs> like, uh, no thanks. Yeah. Hey, guess what? Even if we were committing espionage in France, which obviously we're not about to admit to... Uh. Yeah, no, it's that's ridiculous. But, but let's say we were. Why would we tell anything? Tell you anything about our espionage operations? Yeah. No, definitely no. <laughs> but the fact that they were desperate enough to go and ask that question in the first place, when they knew they would get no answer, it really speaks to you know the mindset of leadership at this point in time. It's not good. Mm-hmm. They'll do anything. They're desperate. <laughs> He's given another military degradation after being found guilty. He doesn't actually have a rank at this point. He's given another 10 years in prison. So at least it's not life, right? 
you got you got to say something that matches the look on your face now this is an audio this is an audio medium (laughs) the the people deserve to know it's difficult it's a little 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 speechless right yeah it's that is just it's it's insane yeah that i mean he's already suffered so much at this point Mm -hmm. they enter an appeal to the military courts because of course you like you have to at this point right but dreyfus is tired like there's no other way to put this yeah he's tired he has lost probably years off of his life from living on that island both in the past and the literal years that he lost but also like just his well-being you know the the man the man lives a, a relatively long life but you know still that takes a toll on you and he's barely gotten away from it when this happens, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, it's been a couple months since he was released. And so can't the Supreme Court be like, no? Well, I mean, you know, that that would be the next step, except that, like, the prosecution offers him a plea deal. Mm-hmm. And they basically say, look, we'll drop the the jail time. We'll drop any further jail time. We'll drop, you know, any further accusations against you. If you just plead guilty, plead guilty, you're the one that did it and we can all move on from this. This never has to happen again. We'll never bother you again. And I mean, like, can you blame the guy for taking it? No, cannot. I don't think I would have made it through the two weeks up front. I can't like, of course he took it. Of course he took it. Who, Who wouldn't, who wouldn't take that deal? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's being, he's being harassed by the French military. Like, what is he supposed to do about this? So I think I think what the I think what the military is going for is trying to uh, appease both sides here, right? And what they really accomplish here is appeasing neither. You have the Dreyfus supporters who are going, but like, but he's guilty, like he's a convicted felon, and and he's got a treason record. Like, how is this better just because you've taken, you know, already years of of his time imprisoned on this, you know, this terrible place, and and. You're saying like it's okay just because he doesn't have to serve any more time? Like that's ridiculous. We all know that he's innocent. And the anti-side is going, what do you mean you're just letting this guy off? He said he's guilty. He said he's guilty. Bring back the death penalty. Are you guys all in the pocket too? Uh, yeah. It's no win. Like you can't you can't get around that. Mm-hmm. And so just everyone's mad about it. But like, you know, they, they, they just kind of go, yep, the, the matter is concluded now. We've got the guilty plea. We're closing everything. This, is, this issue is concluded. And like what you see is like international ridicule over this. Like the, 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 French, the French judicial system is considered like a laughing stock around the world. There are, there are famous artists who are refusing to play in France because of this miscarriage of justice. Like that's an actual thing that's going on. <laughs> Musicians that refuse to tour in France, which is a very... Which is one of those details that reminds you just how modern this whole thing is. Right? Yeah, yeah, it feels very contemporary. You know, in Germany, they're just relieved that this whole thing is closed because France has spent the last uh, however many years talking about German espionage in France, and that's not a great look. You don't want the folks to be on that now, do you? Yeah. Um, I hear <laughs> they've got good new cannons, so this could be an issue. <laughs> So they're mostly just relieved and happy to just kind of ignore the whole thing because yeah. that's what's best for them. Yeah. But like, you know, the, the the public sentiment never really dies down from all of this, right? The camps never really go away. The The anti-Semites are still talking about the conspiracy. The The pro-Dreyfus side is talking about the miscarriage of justice and, the, and all of this. And, and it's just like, 
you know, Zola dies in 1902 and he dies of asphyxiation. His, uh, his chimney got blocked carbon monoxide poisoning mm. and, you know, take this with a massive grain of salt, please. But like in 1953, there's a, there's, there's a man in France who, uh, gives a deathbed confession saying that he was a chimney sweep at the time and he intentionally blocked Zola's, uh, chimney hoping he would be killed because of his support for Dreyfus. Like again, Grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, at the same time, it's not out of the realm of possibility here. Like that's the sort of thing that we're talking about here, right? Dreyfus is asked to stay away from the funeral, and in, in in you know out of concern that it's going to incite further violence, that the the, the funeral is going to turn into a riot based around his trial. Uh, he ends up going anyways. Everything's fine, but you know, that's the atmosphere that we're still looking at right. years after this is quote-unquote settled in 1902 a new uh left-wing president is is elected in france and he sort of he commissions yet another investigation with an eye towards pardoning dreyfus and he is pardoned actually in, in uh, 1906 but the investigation is sort of a little bit rushed through it's sort of it, it's pretty partisan like it's very like political um, and yeah, the right thing is done here, but it's also done for like political grandstanding reasons. And that doesn't necessarily help things either. Mm. There's a lot of people who are, well, yeah, I, I should just have like a soundboard of me talking about, you know, Jewish conspiracy for this episode because well, it yeah, just keeps coming up. It's right? not like that's suddenly going to change the hearts and minds of. Well, exactly. Yeah. Of course not. And, you know, that stuff never, it, it's hard to make that stuff go away. Uh, even when people start uh, stop talking about it, they they continue to kind of quietly believe it. So it, it's it's tough. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, a pardon doesn't just you know, as you said, it just, it doesn't just change everything overnight. The day after his pardoning, uh, he's reinstated in the in the French military because well, he was pardoned, so he should never have been ejected. You know, uh, discharged. Sorry, that's the word. Uh, he's actually given a rank in line with what he should have been promoted to over that period of time if he had stayed in the military. So he's he's reinstated as uh, artillery major general, which is a decent rank. He serves for about a year and ends up retiring over health he concerns. He actually serves. Yeah, uh, in a in a sort of training capacity, in a in a fairly kind of out of the way post. But yeah, he he does serve for a little while. I think I think Dreyfus was a really was a patriot even after all of this stuff. I, it's it's almost heartwarming in a certain way. <laughs> it's 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 also incomprehensible in another yeah. way. I can't imagine how the how, how the cynicism doesn't creep back in. But I, I say that because he he actually ends up returning to uh, service in the the First World War, which is astounding. For I mean in in. <laughs> Let's let's creep back one moment. But in in 1908, Zola is actually moved to uh, the Pantheon, where you know the greatest of the greats in, in French society are sort of uh, interred. Right? He he's actually in the same spot as uh, Victor Hugo and Alexandre Dumas. Mm. He, he was considered a very great writer. Um, Dreyfus is actually shot at the ceremony, uh, clipped, you know, in the arm kind of thing. But the shooter was actually acquitted. Again, on like very like anti-Semitic grounds here. It's kind of like a well, I couldn't help myself. I was caught up in the like it's 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 absolute garbage. It never it never stops, right? Yeah. But yeah, he he does come back for the First World War. He serves through the First World War along with his son, along with two of his nephews. You said he retired due to like health reasons. Yeah, in 1907. Yeah, 
the first world war was a weird time for stuff like this. Yeah. He's not, he's not like frontline, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's, he's serving on the, in, in the general staff, but like, yeah, all four of them are, are serving in the artillery and all four of them end up serving using that same 75 millimeter artillery that was leaked to the Germans in the original note that hmm. caused this whole kerfuffle, right. which I think is a really interesting place to kind of come back around to. And I think is the best place to sort of end this story. Uh, even though, as we said, it's not, it's not really finished there, right? Because what, what the story really points to in a lot of ways is, is um, I think when we discuss anti-Semitism in the 20th century, it's, it's really easy, right? Like it's, it's very, very easy to end up uh, beginning and ending with uh, Nazism and, you know, as much as when you and I have gone through school, there is kind of a focus on the fact that like, yeah, it wasn't just Germany. It was kind of everywhere that this was an issue. I think people sometimes forget just how deeply rooted this was in all of Europe. And this and is for a, a really extended period of time. Centuries and centuries. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, you know, this whole thing was complicated by many factors. But the fact that Dreyfus was Jewish was potentially the most disruptive of those factors. Right. It inflamed the worst of kind of populist uh, tendencies in France at the time. It sort of inspired the imaginations of people who sort of thought the worst of Jewish people in their society. And uh, that really hung on and stuck around and, and changed the course of the whole investigation for the worse, always for the worse. Mm. And and it's it's sort of... Yeah, it's it's sort of odd to look at France, which is is set up as as you know counter to the Nazis in, in the Second World War for obvious reasons, being such a font of of anti semitism not that long before. Was there, in a sense, a glaring spotlight kind of shone on anti semitism as a result of this? I'm trying to look for. I mean, Zola's, an upside of some kind. You know, Jacques was very much about anti semitism yeah. in the system and it was very clearly called as such and the the uh pro Dreyfusads were very clear about what was happening here as well they were saying listen this guy is taking a fall because he's jewish so it's it's in the conversation but this is one of those periods where it is actually a conversation that's happening right, right? which you know it, it's it's you know that that's the other side of it here right is it's easy to focus on the, the worst tendencies of people in this uh, in, in this little vignette, but it's so contentious because it's a time of change, a time of upheaval, and a, a time of challenging those notions. So you know, it's 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 tricky, and it's not you know, it's not just about the anti-Semitism either, right? It's about the Third Republic as being a very new government. It's about the late nineteenth century tension between you know the old monarchies and the new republics, the the transition of concepts of power from the spheres of influences to the nation states and self-determinism and nationalism and all these really complicated ideas distilled down into like this one poor soul getting like completely reamed by bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's why the Dreyfus affair is important. That's why the Dreyfus affair gets taught. And that's why I think it's so hard to teach the Dreyfus affair. Well, I'm, not entirely convinced that I, I've I've done a complete justice here. I, I think I've done a little better than some of the ones that I got, though. Uh, it's it's complex and it it it's a symbol of so many different things happening at that moment in time. But that's why it's so interesting to study because you get to look at it at so many different ways. Do we want to look at this through 
a political lens, through a social lens, through a religious lens? Uh, do we want to look at it as the death throes of medieval Europe? Do we want to look at it as the beginnings of the worst uh, tendencies of nationalism that are going to uh, manifest in the 30s and 40s through uh, fascism? Do we want to do we want to consider things like eugenics that are going to become big? Are we going to consider racial theory? Are we going to consider like there's all of these things that we can talk about here and all of them are extremely impactful. Like very few of these things are incidental to what happens to Alfred Dreyfus. Right. How did the French judicial system recover from that black mark just slowly? Slowly. I mean, one answer is slowly. Another answer is it kind of didn't. Hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're on the fifth French Republic now. So right. if that if that helps put things into perspective, <laughs> yeah. uh, the third falls in 1940 with the invasion right. uh, by Germany. The fourth is the uh, uh, what's known as the Vichy uh, regime. Uh, it lasts a very short amount of time. And then the fifth was established after the Second World War. Um, with uh, a lot of uh, similar characteristics, but a lot of very different ones as well. And, uh, you know, I think in certain ways, especially if you look at uh, the anti-Semitism really benefited from that clean break, especially considering that many of the people in charge at the beginning of the French, uh, the Fifth Republic are the same people who were in charge at some point in the Third. Mm. So, you know, it's funny how a name change can really slap a coat of paint on a on a government and make a lot of things okay. Yeah. But I mean, by the same token, that was a a root of problems for the third Republic, right? Because you have uh, imperials and and monarchists inside this French Republic uh, thinking they know better within the, uh, within the military, right? That hangover kind of is, is a very real thing in regime change. Right. So what did you think of the topic? I'd love to hear some more of your, your reactions. Cause I've been, I've been kind of, sucker punching you over and over through this entire topic yeah, and you haven't well, had a lot of time to almost react. That my uh my facial expressions could not be more captured you, you looked stunned through a, yeah. a good portion of all of this and understandably so i think well, it's always interesting for me to be a guest on this show when it is a topic that i know so very little about mm-hmm. because in this case i kind of just got to follow the narrative in a way that yeah it got, got a very genuine reaction I I felt that a lot of the themes there were, I don't know, I kept being drawn back to like current times and some of the things that are going on right now. Oh, that are it's very easy to kind to of, you know, the crucible style. Yes, this is about the Salem yeah. witch trials, but also it's about McCarthyism. Like it's very easy yeah. to start doing that with, uh, with the Dreyfus affair. And I, I think some of those, critiques are valid and i think a lot of it needs to be looked at in terms of like it's important to remember that was a different time and 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 things are different but you know that's that's one of the tricky parts about seeing similarities in history you know it's 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 not exactly cyclical but occasionally you get like a like a false rhyme in there kind of thing and uh, those are sometimes worth paying attention to a little bit yeah you, you see things like uh free press and open courts being you, you see why those are important. You see, yeah, I, I think it, it hits on a lot of important contemporary themes. Mm-hmm. You, you see how how easily populist discourse can uh, sway some things that you would think would be a little bit less easily influenced. I suppose. 
Yeah. Um, but no, it, it is it is quite possible. You see the power of the press, even though even though even though often it is a uh, in a negative fashion in this case. Like there's still a number of moments where like yeah, a proper press got the right information out there. Yeah, the, and this and this was uh, a, a writer who was was willing to risk imprisonment. His, his own freedom for this yeah for this yeah there there, there are some there, there are some very noble characters in this as much as it's a lot about some sort of cowardly and sort of uh uh unscrupulous characters there there are some some real heroes in there you know even even dreyfus's brother uh Mathieu, for just never just never letting go on that one is, is kind of amazing yeah you know how how long must that man have been just called insane by everyone around him you know let it go man like but really, I mean, it's done. It sounds like in 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 a roundabout way, he sparked really everything that happened. Oh yeah, absolutely. Without that. him, without him, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. I think, um, or or it would have been much more difficult for it to go anywhere. And you'll see that when corrupt things fall apart. Often it's a it's a, you know, we we talked about this a lot in in Watergate. Like often it's not really like the thing uh, itself. Often it's it's uh, somebody trying to scramble to cover up the thing that ends up being the real mistake made by corrupt uh, uh, parties right and and you kind of see that here as well with the with the uh, appointment of Picard to investigate yeah, everything it's, right it's the they picked the wrong guy it's he seemed like the right guy but it's the wrong it, guy it's the hubris because it seems like very few people were aware of just how fragile the case was mm-hmm. and it really speaks to how well they were able to rally people around the wrong motivations here yeah that they were just like of course yeah we we know he's guilty yeah let's just find a little more it's there he's guilty so it'll be there well and you know and at a certain point it becomes institutionalized in a way that like you know when pical comes to it he knows that dreyfus is guilty he knows it he believes it and that's because he hasn't seen the the evidence but because the culture around the statistics section is like he's a he's a guilty man we're just confirming it but we know it. We know we have enough to go on. We just want to short up a little bit. And and the disillusionment that comes from finding out that, like, actually, this institutional knowledge is not correct. That being a sort of a linchpin is 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 a big moment in that. But it doesn't happen without Mathieu sticking his nose where it doesn't belong. You know, it's 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 always interesting to watch stuff like this fall, mostly because you always kind of wonder how many things didn't have that one little happy accident. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you right now. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I, th- I think maybe you hadn't been thinking about that until I just said that. No, and I hadn't. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, the other thing is that, like, if I was just sitting back here and kind of giving the 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 movie review, mm-hmm. it, it would have been... I, I wanted a more satisfying ending for for Dreyfus. Yeah, I mean, that's that's tough, right? I mean, how do you how do you give somebody back that time? You can't. You can't. You can't. And 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 so so what do you want then? Reparations? I mean, he got a full military pension. Vindication in the press? Well, I mean, he got his he got his apology essentially. And he did, but it was so late that it. Well, and what good was it? Like a man still shot him after that, thinking yeah. that he was guilty and that yeah. he should never have been acquitted. You know, it's that's not that's not any sort of peace of mind for him. It, it, should he should he have gotten revenge? Should he have gotten you know gone after the people? I, yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm looking for there. I know, I, and, and I'm yeah. not. It's not it's not anything against you in particular. It's yeah. more just like I I don't know what could have possibly been satisfying here. Yeah. After you do that to somebody, what what could possibly be satisfying? I 
give him a ludicrous amount of money and leave the country never to associate with this system or these people ever again is the closest I can come up with. Yeah. But even then it's like, you know, he had a family, man. Like, and he clearly still had some national pride or when they, you know, said here's your military rank again, he would have just been like, yeah, yeah, no kidding. Like it's just, I don't know. I don't know. Things like this never have a, a satisfying ending, though. I Yeah, a good telling off would be good. I don't know what else. Yeah. I don't know. The other thing that always springs to mind on this one was the timeline in which the public knew who actually did do it. Right. Which is during the thing itself. You know, I when, when you first start hearing about it, you kind of always assume that it's like, and then in like 1967, they, un, you know, they, they, uh, they unsealed some documents and it finally proved that actually this guy who nobody knew who he was, was the real culprit all along. You know, like they the, knew for a while, the, the, the revelation of deep throat and stuff like right, that. Right. Like, right, no, yeah. they, they knew who it was. And, and what's more, everybody knew who it was. You know, there was a, uh, what magazine was it? Uh, one of the, it wasn't the New Yorker, maybe like Variety or something like that. One of those type news magazines had like a, a caricature uh, cover of Esterhazy selling off secrets to the Germans, like during this whole thing. Right. Like it's not, they weren't fooling anybody. Everyone knew what was going on and it still plays out the way that it does. And it's like my, you know, the bullheadedness of all of this, right? And yeah, just some amazing lack of foresight. Oh, very poor planning. This is all very reactionary. Yeah. 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 Just stellar. And I can look back at hindsight and be like, yeah, of course. Oh, A plus boondoggle. Eh? Like just <laughs> like 100% A plus boondoggle. It's, it's extremely good. Um, no, they, 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 they whiffed the whole thing. It's, it's so bad. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, yeah we, we could, we could go on, you know, uh, being incredulous about this whole thing, but, uh, yeah, overall, impressions good story very good story uh the the whole first half eventually came together for you it, it all made sense more or less it was all important back story to understanding right the, it the all matters as to how this could happen yeah this well that's that's how you know a, a jewish man from alsace ends up the target of this witch hunt right yeah. and how it ends up that they can't let him go because of all this um, you know, nouveau anti-Semitism, this, this meeting of old school anti-Semitism and the, and, and this new scientific stuff and nationalist stuff. So many brands the, of anti-Semitism, <laughs> only one of which seemed to hold on to itself towards the end of the story. Mm, being yeah, the, yeah. the old school stuff. I mean, a little Not bit. Not that the scientific like, necessarily went away, but it sounds like a lot of the but it, like. But it lived in the, but it lived in the popular discourse, but that yeah. still lived in the popular, in, in all of these uh, debates that are happening in the streets and all these different newspapers that are talking about him. They're going, well, of course he's, you know, of course he's guilty. You know, Jewish yeah. people are, are shifty or whatever, you know, other uh, uh, stereotypes yeah. we want to stick in here. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, uh, or, or the, or the nationalist version, right? Like has no loyalty to France because he's Jewish. Right. There's all that stuff. Um, so why would he feel any guilt about selling military secrets if he's not loyal to France? Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's so those aspects are there through the entire yeah, thing. No, I guess none of them really went away. No, no, they were they were all. And, and that almost made it more insidious because people who don't necessarily resonate with the uh, the old school anti-Semitism that's left over from monarchy days might still latch on to scientific racism and see themselves as like, no, I'm not like a traditional monarchist, but I do believe in science. And science tells us this about, you know, about there's, the a, there's an anti-Semitism for everyone. For everyone. 
Uh, Pick your poison, man. It's it's everywhere. So so yeah, it's it's I don't know. It's it's a it's not the most fun topic. It's not the most uh, encouraging topic. It's super interesting though. But it's yeah, it's it's this nexus of all these very interesting little things that are happening in France at the time, and it's this really interesting picture into uh, the French government and French society. And I think for that reason, it ends up being uh, well worth continuing to study, even if maybe people could do a little bit better job of explaining why (laughs) so thank you so much for coming on today and uh talking to me about this i really appreciate having you here thank you for having me the dreyfus affair was a preview of what was to come in europe in the first half of the 20th century anti-semitism nationalism paranoia scientific racism populism and more all wrapped up in one package France wasn't where it would ultimately come home to roost, but this incident shows that that wasn't impossible. The conditions were there. It would take seeing these ideas play to their extremes for many to start realizing just how bad they could become. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I did a rather poor job describing the hybrid political system of the Third Republic. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.